every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders. Here on the America Out Loud Network, thank you so much for being part of the audience of people who actually care. People who are willing to wrap their minds around the problem of freedom, the conundrum of staying free in an increasingly unfree world. And especially thanks to those who are willing to stand up and be counted among the Disciples of Liberty. Got some great stuff to share with you today, and and I want to start with something. This this made me laugh only because uh, within the last three months, I moved to Idaho. Now, I know that sounds like a weird flex. Thanks a lot. You know, you're telling us that you moved to Idaho. Great. But uh, I, I came across an article today by Jeff Thomas, who publishes under internationalman.com. And the title was, If It Gets Bad, I'll Go to Idaho. And I'm going to set the stage for what I want to share with you today with this article because this is something that a lot of people are are contemplating. Well, if things get bad, you know, we'll just go somewhere where things are better. But there's a reality that is creeping in on us right now, and it's not the kind of thing that necessarily is going to be, you know, escapable simply because you went to Idaho. I'm talking about uh, what is happening with uh, with spending at the government level, what's happening with monetary policy. The, uh, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about historical cycles. I'm a big fan of a, a kind of school of thought or a model of history that is not necessarily the linear timeline that most of us have grown up understanding. I mean, when, think about when you were in school. The teacher said, okay, let's make a timeline, and we're going to show here's the progress from when Columbus arrived in the New World to... You know, the Civil War, whatever. It's not just this line with a hash mark here, and there was this date that was important because this person was born or this person died or this decision was made. Instead, if you look at the work of William Strauss and Neil Howe in their book, The Fourth Turning, you see that they identified cycles of history. And they're very similar to the cycles that we see play out every calendar year in the different seasons that come and go. And I'll get into that more in detail here in a few minutes. But the the bottom line is, the reason I want to share this, I, I think this is important stuff. It changed the way that I see current events because these cycles of history, you can't predict, so exactly this many years later, you know, somebody's going to get elected who does this. It's It's more like trends. So it can't predict events, but it can certainly show you trends that, uh, that are very common in these cycles. And as you're going to hear, we have seen these cycles play out before in American history. They played out for other you know, civilizations, other countries as well. 
But you think about what people were going through, say, at the time of the American Revolution and during the founding period that followed. That was what was called a fourth turning. They had another fourth turning to deal with during the Civil War and Reconstruction. The next fourth turning came in the Great Depression and World War II. And my point is simply this. At the end of each one of those turnings, at the end of each one of those crisis seasons, the landscape looked very, very different once that crisis was over. Everything had been rearranged. Everything was different. In some cases, it was better. In some cases, it was not better than before. And the reason you need to understand this is because we are going through a fourth turning again. So set that aside for just a moment. I'm going to share that, uh, that essay with you here coming up in just a bit. I want to share, though, this, uh, this comment from Jeff Thomas. If it gets bad, I'll go to Idaho. And he says, in the 1930s, the farm population in the U.S. was nearly 25% of the total. And it was quite common for farmers to borrow from the bank using their farms as collateral in the expectation that the proceeds from their annual crop would pay off the note each year. But in 1929, there was a crash in the stock market, lowering the sales price of crops significantly. That and coincidental droughts throughout the farm belt resulted in a large percentage of the 30 million farmers failing to meet their payments. What happened? Well, they lost their farms. Worse, they could not turn to another line of work as layoffs were taking place in all industries as a result of the Great Depression, which followed the crash. Now, it was said, though, in California, there was year-round good weather and the orange groves were full of fruit needing to be picked. If only the Okies could get there, well, they'd be all right. And, of course, just as most Americans know, that ended in a mass migration. Some 7,000 Okies flooded into California every month. Now, not surprisingly, Californians found that they had to deal with overwhelming numbers of people with limited skills, all of whom were broke. They were everywhere, and in a very short time, the authorities were called in to keep them out. Now, of course, in any situation in which large numbers of starving people are pitted against armed authorities, that situation typically doesn't end well. But Jeff Thomas says, in looking back at this period, it's important to remember that in the mid-1929, Warnings had been offered that a stock market crash was in the making and that the U.S. would soon find itself in an economic crisis. Here's what's interesting, though. In spite of these warnings, do you know what the great majority of people said? They said, eh, if it happens, I'll deal with it when the time comes. Have you heard anybody say that within recent memory? I know I sure have. Unfortunately, says Jeff Thomas, If people to our escape becoming casualties of an economic crisis, they must make plans and implement them in advance of the crisis. So consider this, you know, the fair warning. He says, here we are nearly 90 years later, we find ourselves in a similar situation, a market crash in the making, and the U.S. and many other countries soon will find itself in an economic crisis. And just as in 1929, the bankers and the media are claiming the economy's never been healthier. It's foolish to worry. That is being said, even as larger players are quietly exiting the market. So increasingly, he says, I'm asked for consultations by people who say, I understand a crisis is coming, but what can I do about it? He says, well, in fact, the answer is pretty straightforward, but that doesn't mean it will be painless. 
In fact, he says it requires a major change for most people, often the greatest change of their lifetimes. So here's what Jeff Thomas recommends if you want to be prepared for this economic crisis. He says if you live in a jurisdiction that will be impacted in a major way, liquidate whatever assets you can. In other words, he's saying remove all wealth except for three months of expense money from any banking institutions within that jurisdiction. Do you understand what he's saying there? Three months. But if there's money you can't afford to lose, get it out. He says remove all the proceeds from that jurisdiction to one that's less likely to be impacted. If the proceeds are sufficient that they can be divided into multiple safer jurisdictions, so much the better. Next, he says, convert the proceeds into forms that are difficult for your home jurisdiction to confiscate. Things like real estate, precious metals, and some cash as expense money. Then he says, store all precious metals and cash in a non-banking institution in that jurisdiction. Purchase or rent a home in a jurisdiction that's unlikely to be negatively impacted and obtain the right to reside there, should you choose to move there at short notice. Now, none of those are minor recommendations, right? Most people who have a life and have roots put down somewhere are going to be like, ah, what do you mean? Liquidate my assets, remove all wealth from the the banking institutions in that jurisdiction, take the proceeds to a jurisdiction where it's not likely to be impacted. That sounds like a lot of work, and it would be. Jeff Thomas says, unfortunately, in the great majority of cases in which I've described this as a crisis insurance policy, the individual asking for the advice views the policy as overwhelming. In fact, if he's an American, as many of them are, he often says, ah, if it gets that bad, I'll just go to Idaho. But Jeff Thomas says, unfortunately, this solution is flippant and ill-advised. Since we have no crystal ball, our best bet is to turn to history if we're to gauge the viability of current solutions. Now, we may ask ourselves, how did this play out in similar previous situations? And this almost always forces us to be honest with ourselves, to abandon half-baked or solutions and do the uh, harder work of developing a real solution. So in light of the Oki history of the 1930s, Jeff Thomas says it's safe to say that if an American were to plan to just go to Idaho this time around, we we would anticipate that this is what he would find. Like the Okies, he would already have experienced the crash and had lost whatever wealth he had, however large or small, and was now in a rather desperate situation. Unlike the Okies, he would have better roads to travel on, and the family SUV would be a better moving van than a Model A Ford of the 1930s. Once the decision was reached to actually go to Idaho, countless others would already have hit the road, and an exodus would be underway. Now, it's likely that in today's world, some states would declare an emergency and disallow travel over their roads. Others might charge a fee to pass through as state governments would be in a financial crisis and would need the money. For the last 10 years, police departments have been encouraged by the federal government to make up for their budget shortfalls by relying on civil asset forfeiture. That's the confiscation of possessions, including money, of those traveling the highways. This would likely be to this would be likely to increase dramatically during an economic crisis. And it would not be at all unlikely that gangs of disenfranchised people would also take to the roads to prey on travelers. Once arrived in Idaho, the migrants would find that such a flood of people was quite unwelcome 
to those who had been wise enough to establish themselves years in advance. It wouldn't be at all surprising to find that floods of newcomers would be met with force, both by the authorities and the citizens, as occurred in the 1930s. So the odds that I'll just go to Idaho might be a workable solution to a crisis would be unlikely in the extreme. He says, as stated above, if people are to escape becoming casualties of an economic crisis, they must make plans and implement them in advance of the crisis. Any after-the-fact solution would just be a pipe dream. So I'm not trying to put pressure on you or trying to tell you, yeah, you know, I got mine, so everybody else can just forget about coming to Idaho. Maybe I should just point this out. Uh, When my family and I first moved to Idaho back in early June, one of the first things that happened to us was someone smashed our windshield. Now, this wasn't because our car was sitting there without a state plates in a parking lot somewhere, you know, the, at the shopping center, and someone saw it and went, ooh, I don't like those out-of-state plates. Although I was told, it's probably your out-of-state plates that led to this, but this took place on a quiet cul-de-sac. In a, you know, middle-class neighborhood, in, in, in not a bad part of town. Yeah, I got up one morning, walked out and looked at my Volkswagen and went, my windshield is smashed in like somebody either sat on it or kicked it in. Bottom line is there are some people who are already very hostile to the idea of, you know, outsiders coming to their state and exerting influence that they may or may not want. So something to think about. But the, the key point here is that if you want to escape being a casualty of an economic crisis, the time to prepare is before the crisis hits. And I'm not telling you, I know when it's going to hit. It's coming uh, the 15th of this month. I don't know that. I don't know how anybody could know. But if you're serious about being positioned, you know, so that you don't uh, go down with the ship, then it's probably a good idea to... You know, to, to pay attention to these kind of things. It's, it, I'll, I'll speak from the standpoint, too, of someone moving to Idaho. 25 years ago, I lived in southern Idaho. And it was a growing, flourishing area. There's lots of agriculture. There's a fair amount of industry that comes through there. But in the last 25 years, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, it's insane how many people have come here. And in the last couple of years... It's not just, you know, the south-central part of Idaho. It's everywhere. The Boise area, eastern Idaho, there are so many people coming. I don't know that Idaho is the most moved-into state at this point in the U.S., but it's near the top. Housing prices, absolutely off the charts. Finding a rental, next to impossible. And I won't be shy about telling you this. The, the rental that my family and I were able to find in making our move... It was, it was a godsend. I, I don't think I've ever had a, a stronger impression that God heard my prayer and answered it than when we asked for help to find somewhere to live. We found it, and we're extremely grateful that we were able to find it. Not everybody has, has had that experience. So, I don't know what your plans are. You're going to hunker down wherever you are. Um, you know, this is the thing. I've had a couple of friends who've actually accused me of running for the hills. And I've had to kind of stop and do a little gut check on myself. Did I, did I do that? Did I really just, you know, did I flee Nineveh 
<laughs> so that I could go and do my own thing because I didn't want to, to face, you know, what was going on. I was living, you know, outside of Salt Lake City along the Wasatch Front. Two-thirds of the state's population in Utah lives along about an 80-mile corridor, which is called the Wasatch Front. That's a lot of people. And I'm not going to lie, I was pretty grateful to get out of that population area. But I'm very, very grateful to be where I am. Things seem very normal here. And I hope that if, if there's somewhere where you need to be, you should be paying attention and you know, trying to, to do what you can to, to safeguard what you have. You notice Jeff Thomas was talking a lot about assets. How many people would be okay with selling most of what they have and then relocating? How many people would be okay with cleaning out their bank account except for maybe three months' worth of living expenses? That's assuming you have three months' worth of living expenses saved up. I just was looking at a chart earlier today, and it's uh, pretty clear. Not very many people have put aside that much money. In fact, let me, let me go ahead and just segue into the other part of what I wanted to share with you today. This is an article from my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks. He's the founder and president of Monticello College. And it's called The Shrinking Hegemon, a fourth-turning reality. Now, he starts with some monetary policy, stuff that I'm guessing a lot of people may not be familiar with. Shannon Brooks reminds us, in 1944, the allied soon-to-be victor nations met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, for the United States, or I'm sorry, the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. And at that time, the world economy was very shaky, and the Allies met to discuss the prevailing issues that plagued currency, ex- currency exchange. So the Bretton Woods Agreement, which resulted from that meeting, set the stage for all global economic systems for the next 75 years. Now, this new global economy was based on the gold standard and the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency. All other currencies were then based on the dollar. Now, just so we're clear, world reserve currency is the currency chosen to provide stability for global economics. And he includes an excerpt or two from an article written by Kathy Jones of the Charles Schwab Financial Group back on March 19th of 2021. Quote, we are often asked if the U.S. dollar will lose its status as the world's reserve currency. Investors are concerned that the Federal Reserve's easy monetary policy combined with rising budget deficits, will undermine confidence in the dollar. The recent drop in the dollar over the past year has heightened these concerns, and while we agree there can be unforeseen consequences from the current policy mix, we believe the dollar's role as the dominant global currency looks secure. I don't know if I would agree, but she probably knows stuff that I don't know. Back to the the excerpt. What are reserve currencies? Reserve currencies are typically issued by large, developed countries with records of financial stability. To be held in reserve by a foreign central bank, a currency typically needs to be freely convertible, in other words, not pegged by the government, have a large and liquid debt market that foreign investors can access, have an independent central bank, and be widely used in trade and global transactions. Now, in addition to the U.S. dollar, you have the euro, the Japanese yen, the British pound, Swiss franc, Australian dollar, and Chinese renminbi, all held, I'm sorry, renminbi, they're all held in reserve. However, the dollar is by far the most widely held currency at 60% based on 2020 data from the International Monetary Fund. 
So the U.S. dollar is also used in about 40% of global trade and nearly 80% of all global cross-border transactions. Most commodities and many other goods are traded in U.S. dollars. Oil, copper, and agricultural goods, just to name a few. Investors need to hold dollars to trade in these goods and services and need to have a large and liquid bond market in, in which to invest in those dollars. Having the world's reserve currency affords the U.S. some privileges. It means there's underlying demand for U.S. bonds from foreign central banks and other large investors looking for a safe market in which to invest. That allows the U.S. to borrow at lower rates than it would be otherwise than would otherwise be possible. Many years ago, former French President Valéry Giscard d'Estaing used the phrase "exorbitant privilege" to describe the benefits accruing to the U.S. from having the world's reserve currency. It's still the case today. Now, there's a link to the article there in in this uh, article from my friend Dr. Shannon Brooks: "The Shrinking Hegemon: A Fourth." turning reality. In short, says Shannon, this means most foreign governments hold a large supply of U.S. dollars, which is considered the most stable currency, in reserve to ensure that they can purchase vital international goods like uh, food or industrial products or even crude oil. Now, this unique status afforded the U.S. in 1944 was primarily based on its performance during World War II. In other words, more clearly, He's talking about U.S. military hegemony. We were the biggest, baddest, toughest guys on the block, and as such, it's reasoned we had the respect or fear of all other countries. That was just until a couple of weeks ago, though. We had retained for the most part that image, but that image is beginning to crack. Dr. Brooks says what happens to a country's economy that's been at the top of the game for 75 years and then suddenly is no longer king of the hill? How does losing world reserve status affect a national economy and the standard of living of millions of people who live there? In fact, he asks, does the loss of such status change how our allies and our enemies see us? I think we're going to get the answer to this. For the first time since World War II, U.S. allies are scratching their heads and they're beginning to rethink relationships. Now, the current Afghanistan debacle is changing the way the U.S. is being viewed around the world. And U.S. allies are beginning to wonder if the U.S. can be counted on as the protector of democracy and Western values. Now, if this perception changes, if our allies lose confidence in the U.S. military might and our enemies no longer fear us, the U.S. world reserve currency status will begin to erode and eventually crumble. And when that happens, the once robust U.S. economy will fail and our lives will change forever. Okay, this is the same thing Jeff Thomas is, is alluding to. Shannon Brooks says, Thinking men and women can clearly see that the legislation that adds trillions of dollars to our national debt, an executive administration that's ordering new pandemic lockdowns, and a continued nationwide social breakdown can only serve to weaken us as a nation. The utter failure of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan not only adds to our decline, but will have decades of negative impact for the region and potential adverse effects on global events for the foreseeable future. Now, he says, this is such a profound concept that I think I need to restate it in greater detail. This change has the potential to reset the U.S. economy to second world conditions. 
economically, if not politically, in a short period of time. And what that will mean, for the most part, is the the abolishment, rather, of the welfare state, which that will legitimately impact about roughly half the American population. And this change will lead to economic convulsions and civil unrest beyond anything experienced during the Great Depression. Now, I've got to pump the brakes here, but we're going to explain the historical cycles that come into play when we continue on the other side of our break. And this may be your first introduction to fourth-turning methodology. If it is, I hope you'll uh, you know pull up a chair and get comfortable. The book, The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe, is totally worth your time. Get your hands on a copy. You'll be wiser for it. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, Looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Are you tired of being tired? Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code out loud, all capital letters, out loud for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them and you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Hey, welcome back. 
This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. I'm sharing with you something that is going to be kind of a new concept for some people. And I, you know, I don't want to get so esoteric that you're like, really? This is totally off in the weeds. But I have started looking at history through the lens of understanding that history plays out more in cycles than just as this linear timeline where one thing happens after another and after another, and we just keep track of it, you know, until somebody compiles a textbook. My friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks, who is the uh, co-founder and also the uh, president of MonticelloCollege.org, has written about the shrinking hegemon, meaning U.S. military power, and how it is a fourth-turning reality. And this shouldn't be seen as, oh, wow, you're really fanning the flames trying to make us afraid here of, you know, what's going to happen economically. Oh, we're all going to crash. It's the idea that what we are in right now is an unsustainable situation as it pertains to government borrowing and spending. Our dollar has been seriously devalued over the last hundred plus years since the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And you're already feeling the effects of uh, rising inflation over and over again. You're seeing the effects of inflation uh, taking the purchasing power out of every dollar that you do spend. We probably feel this most keenly when we go to the grocery store and you notice that, okay, I'm spending the same for this particular product, but there's less of the product. Right? Bacon went from 16 ounces in a package to 12 ounces in a package. Price hasn't changed much. It's still roughly the same. But you're getting, you know, you're getting a lot less bacon. You're getting a third less bacon than you were getting before. So what he's doing is sounding, Dr. Brooks is sounding the the alarm for what could happen if we see the U.S. economy reset to second world conditions in a very short period of time. In other words, when the gravy train grinds to a halt, what is likely to happen? And he has a chart here, which this, I'm sorry, this one just kind of gives me a little chill as I look at it, because it asks the question, how much money do you have saved in your savings account? And 23%, no, 21% say, I don't have a savings account. Okay, that sounds about right. No savings whatsoever. Roughly 28% say they have $50 or less in their savings account. And then from there, you have uh, just the minimum required balance. That's about 9%. 13% have less than $1,000. 10% between $1,000 and $400. I'm sorry, $4,999. 5% have between $5,000 and $9,999. 14% say they have $10,000 or more in their savings account. There are not a lot of people who are prepared you know, to weather a serious economic storm. Shannon Brooks says this change would mean a denial, sudden denial of nearly all personal credit. If we see our economy fail, all personal credit stops, forcing almost all Americans to live within their means, which for the vast majority would be far below their current standard of living. And it's sobering to think that nearly 70% of Americans have little to no emergency fund. Now, Dr. Brooks says this kind of change will make the housing collapse of 2008 look like a Sunday picnic. 
Not 6 million American families displaced from their homes, rather tens of millions of defaulted mortgages and evictions. Isn't it interesting that, uh, you know, news media right now is kind of focusing on, well, you know, the the eviction moratorium has been overturned and, you know, it's been uh, struck down. And now they're ending the, the uh, unemployment benefits. And some people look at that as, oh, how government, how could they turn their backs on the people who need it the most? And I don't want to sound flippant when I say this, but for people who are actually looking for work, the good news is, There are probably 7 million jobs out there waiting to be filled. The work is there if someone's willing to do it. It was just easier to sit home and collect checks. I get that. Now, Shannon Brooks says there are, of course, other reasons for a decline in global dominance. And these include things like internal social decay, a loss of national identity, greed and avarice, poor governance, natural disasters, etc., And by the way, this has been the case for every other major historical power, including the Egyptian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Chinese dynasties, just to name a few. Now it seems to be our turn. Now those who are proactive to this coming change can actually benefit from it or at least not suffer from it. But those who rely on normalcy bias will lose most of what they have and struggle for decades. And by normalcy bias, he's talking about the people who will deny what they're seeing. Because they don't, uh, it's, it's the cognitive bias which leads people to disbelieve or to minimize threat warnings. Consequently, individuals underestimate the likelihood of a disaster, when it might affect them, and its potential adverse effects. So, in 2009... Shannon Brooks and Oliver DeMille published a book called Thomas Jefferson Education for Teens. And this was a way to alert the youth to what was coming and how to engage it, particularly focused in Chapter 7, Success in the Next 20 Years. Now, this is where we're going to get into some of that fourth-turning lexicon. And this is where I'm, I'm not telling you, you have to believe this. I'm just going to say, Approach this with an open mind, and I think you will find it it makes a certain amount of sense. You may not, and that's your, your right. But the idea here is that success in the next 20 years offered a solution to the current predicament. So here's an excerpt from that chapter of Thomas Jefferson Education for Teens. History runs in cycles, and there's a pattern of four seasons repeated over and over, each season about 20 to 25 years long. Like the seasons of the year, one naturally follows another, and each feels different and accomplishes a different purpose in the grand scheme of things. In their book, The Fourth Turning, authors William Strauss and Neil Howe call these four seasons turnings, like the phases of a cycle. Now, this is Dr. Brooks and Dr. DeMille both saying, we strongly recommend you purchase and read this important book. There are also some great resources online. Um, Jim Quinn, who writes for The Burning Platform, has done an absolutely brilliant job of analysis in taking some of those uh, those warning signs, those mileposts, if you will, on those cycles of history and pointing out where they are being met and we're passing them today. But to understand what these seasons are, these turnings, this is how you could could look at a very simple explanation of them. The first one is a founding You could liken this to springtime. 
New institutions are built up to solve the great problems that culminated in the last cycle. This is where you get organizations like the United Nations. It's where you get things like Social Security. It's where the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, they they were products of the uh, Bretton Woods Agreement. NATO and other organizations created right after the Great Depression and World War II. Lots of businesses flourished in that period. So, again, new growth, new things, exciting possibilities. That's the founding. That's the first turning. The second turning is called an awakening. This is where youth grow up and challenge the old establishments. Those of you who remember the counterculture movement of the 1960s at Woodstock or maybe the civil rights movement iconically led by Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., among others. And also strong pushes for feminism and environmentalism, etc. That's roughly what summer is like. Third turning is called an unraveling. This would be akin to the onset of fall. And in the case of a third turning... Two or more big viewpoints in political parties fight for power and everything seems like it's coming apart. See, now I can see kind of nodding your head. Oh, yeah, that does sound familiar, doesn't it? Economies boom. But the last time this happened, between was the last unraveling, rather, was between 1984 and 2001. The one before that, well, that was the roaring 1920s. Then comes winter, that fourth turning. That is the crisis. And not to scare you, but that's, that's where we are today. We've seen this coming for a while. It is building to its climax, which will probably happen sometime in the next 10 to 15 years. During a crisis, big problems come. In fact, actually, crisis seasons usually consist of three crises in a row, sometimes overlapped. The first one is called a catalyst or a wake-up crisis that shakes everyone. So that would be events like the Boston Tea Party, the election of Abraham Lincoln, the 1929 stock market crash, which started the Great Depression. I know a lot of people, because we're coming up on the anniversary of uh, 9-11, the 20th anniversary approaches, and a lot of people may be tempted to think, well, maybe that was the catalyst for this crisis period. And I certainly thought that myself, although um, after reading some of Jim Quinn's analysis and some of the other people who have looked at this, there tends to be more consensus that 9-11, while it was was a big, world-shaking event, was not the crisis that really set this turning in motion. That would have been actually the 2008 housing crisis. Now, so that's the first thing. That's the, the catalyst. But then the next crisis comes as a major economic crisis. And then third, there's usually a major war, a pandemic, or a mixture of these and other calamitous elements all at the same time. So if I list off these these crises of the last few fourth turnings that took place on American soil, they would include the Revolutionary War and subsequent depression that came after it, the Civil War and Depression, And then, of course, the Great Depression and World War II. Sounds pretty bad, right? Well, the bad news, which is also the biggest challenge in all of this, is that when that crisis comes, almost every person over 30 years of age is totally immersed in the rules, conventions, and patterns for success of the last phase. Now, this means that even though the economic boom times and long periods of peace are apparently over for a time, 
most people keep making choices that reflect what used to work, even though now all the rules have changed. So they make a lot of ineffective choices because they don't realize the rules have changed. For example, parents educated in second or third seasons often think their kids should see education as job training. But for fourth and first seasons, that's a big mistake. Different rules apply, and during these seasons, teens need to be prepared for entrepreneurship and initiative much more than job-specific skills. And there are many other differences between the seasons. Now, if you read the book, The Fourth Turning, by Strauss and Howe, you'll notice that they spend a lot of time talking about generational archetypes. So, for instance, my mom's generation was a hero generation. They were the ones who fought World War II. They were the ones who survived the Great Depression. And there was a lot of pain. and There was a lot of heavy lifting involved in their generation. And the attitudes that they carry with them, and, and if you know people who lived through the Great Depression, there's, you know, there's not that many of them left anymore. It's been a while. You'll know that uh, they have a very hard time throwing things out. I remember my aunt telling me when uh, they went through my grandma's house after she passed away, And because her and Grandpa had been through the Great Depression, my aunts and uncles were uh, astonished to find every pair of shoelaces that they ever broke. They didn't throw out the broken shoelace. It was kept just in case it could be used for something useful. Now, look, they weren't hoarders, okay? It wasn't like, you know, they lived in squalor and it was just stuff stacked everywhere. Stuff was neatly put away. They never threw away a grocery bag. You know, I mean, from paper grocery bags to the plastic ones, they very carefully folded them and stored them. And again, it comes back to that mindset because, you know, we never know if we're going to need it. Tin foil, same thing. They washed it off and they reused it. And the way that these generations tend to view employment, for instance. For my parents' generation, the idea was, hey, when you get, to, when you get through school, assuming that you go on to college. The idea was you go to get a job, you get a good job, you get a secure job, and then you work that job until you have uh, retired and collected your gold watch. But it was all about stability. And that's the mindset that they brought to the table. And this is, I, I I can vouch for this. My parents always, you know, well, tell me about your job. And if I ever change jobs, they were like, oh man, instability, what's going on? But for my generation, which is what uh, Strauss and Howe refer to as a nomad-type generation, it's really interesting. I, along with my friends, have had to reinvent myself a number of times. There's a much more entrepreneurial journey there. And my kids, even more so than me, are going to have to be tapped into that entrepreneurial thinking Because the rules that worked for me, the rules that worked for my parents, are not going to work during this current fourth turning, which my kids are starting to experience as young adults. Isn't that interesting? The rules have changed. So here are some of the leading rules of success in each turning. So in each season, you will find success in, uh, for instance, in second and third turning, so this would be summer and fall, big institutions professional careers, investment, credentials, resume, leisure and entertainment, right? Those were the priorities. 
But now that we are entering into a fourth turning, which will be followed by a first turning, success is going to be found in things like family and community relations. It's going to be found in in, in entrepreneurial ability and also in initiative and leadership skills. There's a, there's a takeaway, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if it's from the, the book, you know, the uh, uh, Teenager's Guide to or Thomas Jefferson Education for Teens. I think I seem to remember something about the, the new currency isn't just going to be money. It's going to be relationships. For you to solve the problems that you need to solve, you need to have the currency of good, strong relationships during a fourth turning. The point here is that the way to fail in, forced, in fourth rather and first seasons is to try to live by the rules of the previous seasons. But the way to succeed is to engage the new reality. Those who will thrive in times of recession, depression, slow growth economies, even war and other major crises are the ones who focus on home, community, and entrepreneurship. One of the things that I know that uh, both of these men who wrote this book have, have recommended is that a person be capable of being more entrepreneurial in their thinking. Now, this is hard, and, and I'm sure there aren't uh, you know just a small number of people within the sound of my voice who have, haven't grown up with the idea that you, know, you get a job and you stick to it. The better the job, you know, the harder you stick to it. But it's that mindset of, I've got to be an employee. I have to find someone who will hire me, who will put me to work, and pay me a regular paycheck. That is the norm for an awful lot of people. And breaking out of that and becoming an entrepreneur yourself, it can be scary. Not everybody wants to do it, right? There's risk. What if I fail? Well, you might. Because there are a lot of entrepreneurial ventures that do, in fact, fail. But this is the way that you can help immunize yourself or prepare yourself against economic difficulty, even even possible economic collapse. One of the things they recommend is what they call a little factory. And and they're talking about a home-based business, a cottage industry. People who can come up with some kind of thing, whether it's a hobby that they monetize and it doesn't have to become their primary means of living but just a way of creating value for other people that you can turn around and use to either create cash flow i don't know maybe the way to do it is you create barter i've got a friend who just started beekeeping as uh, you know a hobby she and her kids thought it would be cool they bought the bee suits and they got some bees and they learned how to do beekeeping But the more they dove into it, the more they became familiar with uh, what it takes to be an apiary. And pretty soon, whenever someone would find a swarm of bees, they would call my friend and her kids to suit up and go take care of it. And it's become a very productive sideline for them. If they wanted to, I'm sure they could probably make a fairly decent living off of, you know, taking care of beehives, harvesting honey. You know, collecting swarms when it happens. You see the point. The idea is if you can do something from your home, you have a hedge against things that might come up that would prevent you from taking place in society or taking part in society, you know, and and earning a living as most people do. You know, showing up for work. Just hypothetically. 
What if someone were to pass, oh, I don't know, we'll call it a vaccine passport kind of policy, saying that you can't work here unless you've had the vaccine. You can't shop here unless you've had the vaccine. You can't come here to watch entertainment. You can't ride on this plane or this boat or this train unless you've had the vaccine. Just hypothetically, if such a situation were to arise and someone were to, you know, try to force people out of polite society who did not comply, would that not give you a little bit of breathing room if you were able to do something from home, have some kind of a mini factory, a little cottage industry that you could fall back on at that time of need? I'm not saying it's the, it's the only answer. I'm just saying it seems to me that could make a very necessary difference if you needed it. Now, as for life from now through the 2030s, the 2040s, maybe into the 2050s, Shannon Brooks and Oliver DeMille say it's time to get real. Success now and for most of your life will be determined according to the rules of fourth and first seasons. So crisis and then founding. The new fourth-turning economy and society is here, and realities with it. These new realities need all your idealism, enthusiasm, but they can't and won't be the past, which too many adults are desperately trying to cling to or just beginning to mourn over. So you got to get your mind around the idea that uh, those things are gone. Now, another key of leadership is to focus on what comes next. Not on the past or not even on the challenges of now, but on building what comes next. Overcoming current challenges is important, but the focus should be on what's ahead. And because of cycles and seasons, one of the most important classics or some of the most important classics to study as a teen, or I would say even as an adult, are those written during fourth and first seasons by authors who lived through them. Let me give an example. This one was pointed out to me some time ago. The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch citizen during World War II when the Nazis invaded and occupied the Netherlands. She was one of the people who, you know, uh, got caught up in what they were doing. I, I can't remember. I believe her and her family were hiding Jews, if I'm not mistaken. At any rate, someone turned them in, and she and her family um, were sent to, I think it was, uh, was it Ravensbrück? Anyway, they were sent to a concentration camp where her sister Betsy died. Corey Ten Boom survived, but she writes about her experience. She writes about what they went through. And I know that's a very bleak thing. Wait, do you want me to read about somebody who went to a concentration camp as preparation for what it's like to live through a fourth turning? Yes, but here's why. Because of what she went through, Corey Ten Boom came out of that experience uniquely equipped, in her case, to be a missionary for Christ. Her faith and her testimony of Christ was, was top-notch. And she talked about how uh, that, that experience taught her to see things through eyes with gratitude. For instance, uh, it, was, it was understood that in the barracks where she and the other women were, were living in this camp, the infestation of lice was unbelievable. I mean, look, my kid comes home scratching his head, and I'm like, oh, man, don't come near me until we know for sure you don't have lice. This was not an option in her time. They were thoroughly infested with lice. But here's the good news. Because she was so infested with lice and because the lice were so thick in their living quarters, 
the German guards who would normally go in there and shake down the camp and, you know, look for contraband and whatever they could find, they didn't dare walk into those barracks. And the reason that was a blessing was because Corey had managed to smuggle a Bible with her into the barracks. And as long as the camp guards would not go in and search for it and find it, she and the other prisoners had a source of strength, of light, of encouragement. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, because of the cycles and seasons and some of these different classics that you can read, there's one in particular called Our Home by C.E. Sargent. He lived through the fourth turning of the Civil War period. He built his career and family in the first turning that followed. So one of the best of these books with a focus on family and entrepreneurship, Our Home by C.E. Sargent. Listen to just a few of the rules for financial success, family leadership, and even overall happiness in fourth and first seasons, at least as thought of by C.E. Sargent. First of all, he says, embrace the new and the now. Okay, that's harder than it sounds, but I I will attest it. It's actually pretty good once you learn to roll with the punches. Embrace the new and the now. Accept the fact that normal, as we knew it, is going to be gone for a season. Then he suggests articulate and write down your personal rules for life and live them. Now that may sound like, hey, is that homework? Somebody giving me a homework assignment? I'm just going to suggest if you really want to know what you stand for, who you really are. If you write down your personal rules for life and regularly visit them, you'll be astonished what you can learn about yourself. I met a friend here within the last couple of years. Um, One of the first things he did when he introduced himself to me was he said, you know, I kind of have a little uh, list of things that uh, I believe to be true. These are the principles upon which I base my life. And it was probably 30 or 40 different personal rules for how he chose to live his life. After reading them, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that I was dealing with a guy who was a kindred spirit in the uh, in the cause of freedom. In fact, I learned some clarification of things in my own life that I thought, yeah, I stand for that too. I need to I need to make sure that I remember this is an important part of who I am. Number 3, according to CE Sergeant, Make meaning a central focus of your learning, conversations, and thinking. Be grateful. Look for the silver lining. Okay, this would be like Corey Ten Boom and the silver lining of living in lice-infested barracks. Number four, make marriage the central focus of your life. Number five, embrace entrepreneurship, the only path to stability in uncertain times. And that's, you know, some people will hear that and think, well, what are you trying to say? I got to go start a successful business, build a Fortune 500 company? It's even simpler than that. What you need to do is figure out a way to create value for other people. That's the path to stability in uncertain times. Number six, develop creativity and inventiveness. Figure things out. Number seven, dig deep and find your inner resiliency. Stay optimistic and enthusiastic. Now, if any of those ideas create a desire to know more, You're encouraged to read the entire seventh chapter of Thomas Jefferson Education for Teens. There's something else that I want to introduce you to, and that is the term the new economy. This is something that Monticello College, and they have a website, MonticelloCollege.org, is doing on their campus. 
They are training students to see the world differently and to consider the viability and value of, first and foremost, getting a world-class LIBOR education. Secondly, building a home without a mortgage. Oh, it can be done. And they're actually very comfortable, very functional homes. Nope, it's not a cookie-cutter home like everything you'll find in your subdivision, but absolutely workable and, and most importantly, to be done without a mortgage. They also learn to live with off-grid energy. Sometimes it's solar, sometimes it's wind-powered. Solar is probably the better way to go. You'd be surprised what you can accomplish with off-grid energy. They also were taught to grow their own food. I don't know what the percentage is of the the food that they provide for themselves, but I bet it's 70% or above. These students grow their own food as part of their schooling. And finally, starting one's own business. And this is something Dr. Shannon Brooks describes in his book, American, Killing the American Dream. He says, look, there can be no doubt that the times are changing that things are changing. All students of history know society tends to be fluid, not fixed and rigid. And those who can't change with the times are doomed to suffer the consequences. So don't be that person. We're past the point of speculation. The writing is on the wall. The proof is in the pudding. He says, if you made it to this closing paragraph, it's likely that we share this view. So his question is, are you prepared? Have you implemented these kinds of changes in your life? And if the answer is yes, thank God for your foresight. Now go and help others. And if the answer is no, then his question is, what in the world are you waiting for? I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.